Good morning. Hi. What a great day. Man. Well, you know, being charismatics, we don't have a lot of room up here. So it could be a problem. Yeah, maybe I'll need to play the drums. All right. Well, as you know, and as Bert uh, just alluded to, one of the most significant responsibilities your pastors bear are, is to entrust the gospel to the next generation of pastors. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul instructs his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, to take what he has learned from Paul and to entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we see four generations in view there. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. Pastors must entrust the ministry of the gospel to faithful men for future generations. This is one of our most significant responsibilities. And I am so excited today to entrust the ministry of the gospel to a faithful man, Merrick Potter. Amen. A man who not only passed every test with flying collars, but who was also awarded at our pastor's college both the academic and humility award, which I received neither of. <laughs> so well done. And Abby. We get you too. Through all that you have sacrificed and shouldered. Days without Merrick there to help because he's off studying nights when you're going to bed alone because Merrick's off studying getting boys to church carrying your own loads you are a woman who is godly who loves our Lord and we gratefully receive you as well Governor Grace, your pastors do joyfully and wholeheartedly commend the godly character, the pastoral gifting of Merrick Potter for ordination as an elder in Sovereign Grace churches. We affirm he is a man of integrity, compassion, and conviction. Merrick has wisdom beyond his years and a heart eager to serve. He is gifted to teach and able to care for God's people. And we believe that Merrick's ministry will be a testament to the grace and the glory of our great God. And it has been very encouraging to read the notes of affirmation that you sent along as well. I want to share a few of them briefly with you, parts with you. One member wrote and said, We have benefited from Merrick's pulpit ministry and bear witness to his ability to teach. His biblical insights, his intentionality at using the whole counsel of Scripture to inform Scripture his use of relevant illustrations and quotes, and his candor and genuineness are all a joy to track with and make the preached message worthy of revisiting. Another member wrote to affirm Merrick's calling to ministry saying, 
I'm not writing this because Merrick is one of our own or because of his handsome face and winsome smile. That's, you know, not Abby. <laughs> there, it, nope, there was no, fa no family relation. But because I have personally observed in him godly character traits and experienced his pastoral care. Another member wrote, both Merrick and Abby manifest a genuine love for the Savior and care for the church. And then listen to this testimony from a member. They write, many times I have been the recipient of Merrick's sincere care during difficult trials. He listens carefully and sincerely, entering into the suffering with me and always bringing a word of encouragement from God's word. Amen. American Abbey, this day is a testimony of God's grace in your lives. And it is also a testimony of his grace to our church. You two are a gift to us. And we love you. And we thank God for you. As the psalmist says, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with. Now, if you would, please join me in turning in your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians and the 6th chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I've entitled this message, A Ministry That Commends. A Ministry That Commends. In a wedding ceremony, the sermon serves to prepare a couple for the vows they are about to take. And in a somewhat similar situation, similar, similar way, I envision this sermon today as preparing Merrick for the ordination vows he is about to take after the message. Uh, it's not quite the same as a wedding uh, vows. I think we all get that. Uh, and yet they are serious and significant. And I also see today's sermon as preparing the rest of us for whatever application God may have in it for us there is much, but it is also preparing the rest of us to receive Merrick as one of our pastors. 2 Corinthians 6 is not as familiar a passage on pastoral ministry as some others are, but it is nevertheless an important one filled with insight and instruction on the character of a faithful servant. So I invite you to follow along with me now as I read verses 1 through 13. This is what Holy Scripture says working together with him that is god working together with him then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of god in vain for he says in a favorable time i listened to you and in a day of salvation i have helped you behold now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. 
but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And may the Lord help us today the study of his word. Switching from the church to the cinema for a moment, when a new movie comes out, you might be interested to know what the critics are saying about it. Uh, Do they recommend the movie or not? Maybe you want to know its score on Rotten Tomatoes. Is it rotten or fresh? Which... Just a quick aside on Rotten Tomatoes. In case you're not familiar, it's a website that scores a movie by combing through all kinds of different movie reviews and classifying each one as either fresh or rotten and then tallying them up. Uh, The problem with this is there's very little nuance. A review is either fresh or rotten, that's it. And so even if it's a, a little bit fair, a little bit good, it gets labeled as fresh. And this is how a kid's film like Paddington, the adorable little bear in blue, I think it is, can score a 97% fresh rating and its sequel, which you know are notoriously better than the first ones, can score a 99% But then the Fellowship of the Rings, a mere 93%. What a scandal. Or many other great classics that maybe are a little older or challenging to watch, like Gone with the Wind, a mere 90% compared to the classic Paddington. 
And I'm no film critic, but I'm going to say something's off. So just a note, beware of using Rotten Tomatoes. In any case, you might be interested to know what the critic thinks of a movie, if they commend it or not. But turning from movies back to ministers then, what is it that commends a pastor? What commends a pastor in his ministry? Is it a degree from a seminary? Is it his education? Is it his right theology? Is it his popularity or his giftedness? Is it his success? If he's written a book or has built a large church? Or is it his, what was that? Handsome face and winsome smile? No one said that about me when I was getting ordained, just saying. In our passage today, Paul is very concerned with what commends a pastor's ministry. He's especially concerned with what commends uh, a pastor's ministry, but there's broad application for all of us here because in one sense we're all ministers of God. We are all witnesses to the gospel and have a ministry to one another. In fact, look back with me for just a minute. Let's do a little legwork here. Back to chapter 5 and begin with me in verse 14. This really informs much of what Paul says in chapter 6. So beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, the, for the love of Christ controls us. This language is so radical here. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Jesus, therefore all have died. And he, had, he died for all that, which is to say, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you are no longer your own. You have been bought by Christ. Or as John Piper likes to say, you are doubly owned. God made you and God bought you. And so you are not your own. Your life is not your own. And this is why Paul, a few verses later in chapter 6, which we're looking at, calls himself a servant of God. He exists, and you and I exist as, servant, as Christians, to serve God, not ourselves. Continuing on, verse 16 of chapter 5, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So he says, salvation, you see, it's drawn this line of demarcation. From now on, from this point forward, this is how we see people, not according to the flesh. We leave the law, go out into the lobby today, and we see people, we don't look at them through eyes of flesh only, not with our natural eyes, but continuing in verse 16, he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul is saying, when Jesus saved me, my view of Jesus changed, my view of God changed, and my view of life changed, and my view of everybody else changed. Everything changes with Jesus. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ today? If anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ? Because if so, then this is about you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. All this, verse 18, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, this is the miracle, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You have been given a ministry and a message. Verse 20, therefore, here's our new identity, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, Paul writes, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. This is the gospel. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul's saying through the miracle and the ministry and the message of reconciliation, we are made ambassadors of Jesus Christ, God making his appeal through Paul and through us. That was Paul's mission. And this is our mission. That was Paul's ministry, and this is our ministry if we are in Christ Jesus. Through the miracle, the ministry, and the message of reconciliation, we too are God's ambassadors, which is why, which is why, like Paul says in chapter 6, verse 3, we must be very careful to put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Do you get that? Do you get that? The Greek is very emphatic here. Paul says, no obstacle whatsoever in anyone's way, so that no fault whatsoever may be found in any way. And then in verse 4 he says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So Paul is very careful with what he does and what he does not do. He's very concerned with his testimony because it either commends or contradicts his ministry. His life is his letter of commendation. And your life is yours. And if, like Paul, our concern really is the ministry and message of reconciliation, if it really is a concern for, for unbelievers to hear and believe the gospel, but also for this church to live out the gospel and to, as Paul says in verse 2, make sure that none of us receive the grace of God in vain, if we really are concerned for the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of Christians through the ministry of the gospel, then we must also be very concerned about whether our life commends the gospel or obstructs it. You see, if you believe the gospel and you want to be a faithful ambassador of reconciliation and a good servant in the Lord, then what you must fear, what you must, what you must count as one of your great heartbreaks is the thought that your life gets in the way of God's work.
if with Paul we are very concerned with evangelism and the health of the church, then we must also be very concerned that our life not be a contradiction to the gospel that we preach and the God that we serve, but that our life commends our ministry. We don't want an unbeliever or a member of this church or our spouse or our kids to look at our life and think, is that what it means to follow Jesus? Is that what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation? Is that what it means to serve the God of all grace? And for there to be some kind of negative association. If you have a concern for souls, if you have a concern for other people, you're going to have a concern for your testimony, for how you live. Does your life speak well of the gospel? And so, begin examining yourself right now. Draw a circle around you and ask yourself, does my life, does the way that I'm living right now speak well of the gospel? Does it commend the God of grace? Or to ask the same thing, but from the other side, what in my life doesn't commend the gospel? What in my life is an obstacle to my husband or to my kids or to members in this church or to a watching world that when I try and minister to them, they're hung up over this in my life? What's the this for you? Is it an inordinate interest in something? Is it a sin that you're indulging? Is it a way that you speak? Is it impatience under a trial? What is it in your life that distracts from the message and the ministry of reconciliation that God has entrusted to you? Friends, if we're gripped by the gospel, as Paul was gripped by the gospel, then this will be a serious concern for us. It will be a serious and a regular concern for all of us as servants of God, but it will especially be a concern for pastors. For ministers of the gospel who are to model this for our congregation. So Merrick and Jacob and Bert and myself, we must strive to model a life that commends a gospel ministry. And to help us with this, and help us think through this, Paul lists in the rest of our passage at least five ways our lives commend our ministry. At least five ways our life can commend our ministry. This is how we can commend ourselves, and thus the ministry that we carry out. First is through the suffering we endure. Through the suffering we we endure. If you want to open doors and remove obstacles for the gospel, you're going to have to endure trials. It's amazing how enduring through trials opens doors. The hardest things we go through are often what opens up doors for helping and caring and communicating the gospel. Look again with me at verse 4. Paul says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And the first thing he mentions is, by great endurance. This is the only one in this, this long list that follows. This is the only one that 
has an adjective with it. So it, it stands out as something of a banner flying over all that follows. What characterizes a faithful servant of God is his great endurance. He carries on and doesn't give up through all the trials that come his way, whether they're from the hand of God or the hand of other people or even his own hand. Paul lists, for example, three groups of three here. It's actually very symmetrical. This passage is interesting how Paul does it. This is not the first group of three that we're going to see, or the first three groups of three. So three groups of three that he gives us. First, the things that come from the hand of God in this world. That's kind of the first category. The hand of What comes from the hand of God, the trials that do. Uh, from his providential hand. We live in a fallen world, and so we know we're going to meet with difficulty just as a, as a matter of course. And so Paul describes them as afflictions, hardships and calamities Uh, first is afflictions this word refers to pressures in life crushing experiences troubles that weigh us down that burden our heart the servant of god is going to experience crushing disappointments Some of you come in with that today. You've experienced crushing disappointments recently. But a faithful servant endures on. As Paul said back in chapter 4, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Second is hardships. This refers to distressing situations, especially those brought about by necessity. Difficulties thrust upon us. And then third, Paul says, calamities. Now, this is an interesting word, calamities. In the Greek, it literally means to confine to a narrow place. To confine to a narrow place. So it's like you're stuck in a situation. You're just stuck. You can't get out. You can't escape. You can't even get comfortable in it. You're stuck in a narrow place. From a human perspective, there appears to be no way out. And yet a faithful servant of God presses forward, onward and upward into Jesus Christ. Great endurance. The first set of three we can put into the category of coming from the hand of God. The second three we can put into the category of coming from the hand of others. Coming from the hand of others. He lists beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Uh, These are all forms of, of persecution for our ministry, which... By the grace of God, few of us, if any of us, have ever experienced these three things for the gospel. Beatings, imprisonments, riots. We've been persecuted, but as of yet, nothing probably to this degree. But a faithful faithful servant of God must endure the hostilities of others in whatever form they come to us. We can't give up. We can't back down. We can't throw in the towel in the face of adversity. And then finally, the third set of threes, you can put these into the category of coming from our own hand. Coming from our own hand because we desire to be faithful. Paul lists off labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. So first, labors. This is working to the point of exhaustion. Uh, Who makes us do that? Who makes us work so hard for Christ and for the ministry? We do. Through sleepless nights. Parents of little children, he's talking about you. This is your ministry of the gospel right now. Yes, they are a gift from God, and yet they include many sleepless nights. 
That's just part of the season of ministry that you're in. But as a pastor, I can also testify to sleepless nights. Uh, I've had Saturdays where things came up and I didn't get to my sermon like I needed to. And so after the kids go down, it's 9 p.m. I'm sitting down with half a sermon to write and the whole night in front of me. Sleepless nights. The work has to get done. And so if I ever say anything weird to you on a Sunday morning with a little bit of, you know, red eyes and stuff, just understand, he was probably up all night last night. I should cut him some slack. <laughs> Laboring through sleepless nights and even at times, Paul says, without food. Maybe that's because we're fasting or maybe that's because we have to work through a meal or maybe because sometimes there's just not enough money to buy food. And yet the faithful servant of God, he doesn't quit. He labors on with the strength God provides, Philippians 4. So, Merrick, some believe, I'm sure no one here in this church does, but some believe the ministry to be an indoor job uh, with no heavy lifting. Uh, there was an old southern joke that said that a hot sun and a slow mule had been responsible for many a call to ministry. Hot sun and a slow mule, hard work was the cause for many to seek the ministry. And I've had people ask me before, what do you do all day? Just make paper airplanes and I throw them down the, the hall to Bert, <laughs> ask him to send it back. You all know. And Merrick, you know, but I'll say it again. Ministry is hard work. And most often that's because it is heart work. It's hard studying, but the studying is not just getting right theology. It's getting your people right. And it's hard talks. And it's hard decisions. All of it is worthwhile work, but still hard work that in one sense must be endured. And even as I see kids wiggling in the pew and stuff, you know, it makes me think it's happening right now. It's hard work. And Abby, you have it every Sunday, wrestling kids and loving them out the door and getting them here. Ministry is hard work. But a faithful servant commends the gospel through the suffering he endures. And this produces character. It produces character. This is what scripture teaches, Romans 4, James 1. Suffering produces character. And this is also the second way we commend the, go or commend the gospel ministry in our lives. Number two, through the character we show. Through the character we show. Offering, so often scripture, suffering and character are combined. And so you, you want to get this. This is very important. It's not just that we endure hardship. Uh, the truth of the matter is you, you can endure all kinds of things with an entirely wrong motive, with an entirely wrong mindset, with an entirely wrong set of attitudes, so that, here's the tell, the tell sign of that, you become weary in doing well. Eventually you become weary. Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up, if you do not give up. But... There is a kind of enduring with the wrong mindset and the wrong motives that will make you weary. It can make you lukewarm. 
It can even make you bitter. It can begin to weigh into your motives so that you do what you do because of a sense of duty. It's what you have to do. And all this becomes very obvious to those around you. And it obstructs the gospel. It obstructs ministry. So it's not just enduring that matters, but it's enduring with godly character. And so Paul gives us two groups of three this time, two groups of three under this one. A life in ministry that commends the gospel endures hardship first with purity. We're in verse 6, purity or holiness. And again, it's not perfection, but it's a pattern that we're after. Uh, through trials, we are putting away sin. We're casting off the flesh. Second, we should be marked by knowledge. Purity and knowledge, Paul says, which is to say the truth of God is reigning in our lives. We're living by the word and not by worldly standards. Third and fourth on Paul's list is patience and kindness. Two fruits of the Spirit, which is probably why he lists the Holy Spirit fifth. And then six concludes with genuine love, another fruit of the Spirit. So instead of being embittered and frustrated and angry and resentful by all the afflictions and the hardships and the adversities and the calamities and the labors and the sleepless nights, instead in the Spirit we find resources to give and not to grumble. To be patient in God's timing rather than to pity ourselves and to be kind to others rather than to take it out on them. One of my historical heroes is, is Robert Murray McShane. He was a Scottish minister in the Church of, of uh, well, in the Church of Scotland, hence a Scottish minister. Uh, he was a minister in the Church of Scotland back in the 1800s. Uh, he has a memoir, which I'm reading through for the fourth or fifth time right now, uh, because it's that good. And McShane has a very famous quote it's short. The greatest need of my people. Who are your people? This church is your people. Your family is your people. Those you're witnessing to, your neighbors and coworkers, they're your people. The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Merrick, this church needs most of all from you, your holiness. More than anything else. And I hope that stands out to everybody more than any gift that he brings. The greatest gift you can give us isn't the occasional powerful sermon. It's not even the occasional life-changing sermon. It's not just rightly handling the word. That's not enough. The greatest gift you can give us is your personal holiness. Because it's your godly character that makes everything you teach and preach believable. It's great when a man is esteemed for his theology for his leadership, for his understanding of scripture, for his ability to teach, but we must he must but what he must be esteemed for is his character. Merrick, your holiness, which was attested to in many of the notes that people sent along our way and we attest to it as well, but it is your holiness that is your letter of commendation to us. 
and will be throughout all your ministry. All right, a third way we commend the gospel, a third way we commend the gospel and the ministry we have with it is through the ministry we perform. Through the ministry we perform. In verse 7, Paul gives us another group of three. Another group of three. With this, he describes the ministry of a faithful servant. We commend the gospel, he says, by truthful speech, or literally the word of truth, the word of truth, the power of God, and the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Um, perhaps the sword of the Spirit in the right hand and the shield of faith in the left from Ephesians 6. Paul's point here is a faithful servant never sinks to human means to do his ministry. He doesn't try and build a church with funny jokes or feel-good stories. It's not merely about how well he can preach. Uh, In his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul said, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. But I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he went on to explain, I came to you in weakness. I came to you in fear and much trembling. We don't often think of the Apostle Paul like that, coming to them in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should rest not on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul knew where the power was. It wasn't in persuasive speech. He didn't try and rely on his own cleverness or some kind of shtick to try and manipulate people to follow him. And neither did Paul ever water down the gospel or try to avoid difficult doctrines that might scare some away. No, Paul relied wholly on the proclamation of the word of God, on the word of truth, of Christ and him crucified. And in that was manifested the real power of God. So Merrick, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. In Covenant of Grace Church, As we receive Merrick as one of our pastors today, let's take to heart the exhortation of Hebrews 13, verse 7. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate them. All right, a fourth way we commend our ministry, a fourth way we commend our ministry, through the faith we exhibit, through the faith we exhibit. There is the endurance through all kinds of trials, showcasing godly character while we minister the word of truth. But then he says in verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. If you're counting, that's another group of three. In fact, it's the first of another three groups of three that highlight the life of faith that commends a man in his ministry. The world, Paul's looking at, at, at us in the ministry. He's looking at it in some ways through the eyes of the world. He says the world sees us one way. And how they see us is partially true. But it's not the whole truth. 
and it's certainly not the main truth. So first in verse 9, the world sees us as a bunch of unknowns, he says. And yet we are actually well-known. Yes, we are a bunch of nobodies in this life. We're not particularly impressive. We are a part of a shrinking movement in an increasingly secular culture. And yet, we are known by God. And that's what matters. Second, the world sees us as dying. And yet, behold, look at this. We live. It's true. Every day we are dying. If we are faithful followers of Jesus Christ, we are taking up our cross every day and following Jesus Christ. And some of us are even imprisoned and killed for Jesus Christ. But we are more alive, we are more alive than the world is. Because Christ is our life. We are alive in him and he will raise us up from the dead. And then number three, end of verse nine. You see us as punished. The world sees us as punished. And yet, we are not killed. Which is to say, yes, we're persecuted. People do hate us. And yet, God will spare our life over and over and over again until our work in this life is done. They can't kill us. Number four, verse 10. You see us as sorrowful. And yet we are always rejoicing. It's true, we're sorrowful. There are countless reasons for our hearts to break. Just recently, I, I cried over my sin. I, I am the cause of most of my heartbreak. There's plenty of sadness to mourn in this world. And we don't try to ignore it. We don't try to avoid it. We've mourned it. I've been asked before what the saddest part of ministry is. What's the saddest part of ministry? Ministry can be great, but it can also be really sad. And I was thinking about this this morning when I was looking back over my notes and I was wondering how Bert and Jacob might answer this question. It would be an interesting conversation to have. For me, it isn't when unbelievers don't respond to the truth. That's sad. I do mourn that. I wish I mourned it more. It's sad when an unbeliever rejects the truth. But for me, the saddest part of ministry is when believers don't respond to the truth. When people who have the Holy Spirit, and they have the Bible, but they won't listen. They won't obey God's word. To me, that's the saddest part of ministry. We are sorrowful, and yet we can be joy-filled in Jesus. 
we can embrace the sorrows of this life and yet not be taken out by them because we have Jesus who holds us up. So we can count trials joy because we know God's going to use them for our good. We can still rejoice in sorrow because Jesus has saved us. We're never getting what we deserve. And because we know he loves us because he gave his life for us and he's promised to work all things together for our world. The world needs to see that we can, we can enter into sorrow and yet still rejoice. Only because of Jesus, though. Number five, the world sees us as poor, yet we are making many rich. Uh, listen, folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, this newsflash, Merrick is not getting into ministry for the money. Uh, well, we try to compensate him well. The scripture calls us to do that, but I can assure you he's not in it for the money. We also make sure of that. He's not in it to get people or to get rich, but he's in it to make others rich in Jesus Christ. And that is the great joy of gospel ministry. And then number six, the world sees us as having nothing, and yet we are possessing everything. In one sense, we have counted everything as lost, right? Everything is lost for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord, Philippians 3, verse 8. But at the same time, we are in fact children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 7, or eight seventeen. So to every Christian, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, all things are yours. All things are yours. In Christ, you're going to inherit everything. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. So through Christ, we possess everything. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Till the Lord comes back. And brings his kingdom in full. And friends, all this, these paradoxes of one thing, but actually it's another, two. All this gets at the life of faith we live. So we don't just see with natural eyes, but we see with eyes of faith. And the faith that we live, the faith-filled life we live, commends a ministry that must be received by faith. A gospel that needs to be received by faith. And so... Merrick, live by faith, brother. Live by faith in the word of God. And labor to strengthen our faith. Labor to strengthen our faith. Fifth and finally, we're winding down here with this. Fifth and finally, a fifth and final way we commend our ministry is through the heart we keep. Through the heart we keep. Verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. When Paul says here, or what Paul says here, it really is quite remarkable when we think about it and consider how badly the Corinthians treated him. They rebelled against him. They disobeyed him. They criticized him. They believed lies about him. 
there seemed to be no room in their heart for Paul, and yet his heart remains wide open to them. What is a heart wide open? What is a wide open heart? What is a large heart, a big heart? We talk about that. We talk about he's got a big heart. What, what is a big heart? It's a friend willing to listen to you blather on about another bad day again. A wide open heart is a husband who listens to his wife with caring and understanding even after she's insulted him. A wide open heart is a wife who can affirm and compliment her husband even after he's failed her. A wide open heart is a father who can embrace and hug and love on his kids even after they've disobeyed him. And friends, this is the gospel. God makes the very same appeal to us that Paul made to the Corinthians. I can share a million examples from scripture, but I'll give you just two, one from the Old and one from the New Testaments. First, in Isaiah 1, verse 18, come now, this is the Lord, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God appeals to us to come to him, even with all our sin, and he will wash us clean again. His heart is wide open to us. And a second passage, Jesus near the time of his death in Matthew 22, verse 37 said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. It wasn't the Lord that held back from them. His heart was wide open. Jesus came to show us the heart of God he longs to gather us in, if only we'll open our hearts wide to him. Friends, this is the gospel. And so in conclusion, Merrick, I want to exhort you, aim to be a pastor after God's own heart. Stay near to the gospel and rejoice in God's heart for you so that you can love this church with a heart wide open. Though we sin again. And though we sin against you again. Love us with a gospel love and you will gain our affections. And Covenant of Grace Church, America's a good man He's going to be a good pastor. But we know he won't be perfect. More perfect than me, but, but still not perfect. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to sin against you. 
And that should not scandalize you. Because he's not Jesus. He's just a man. Even though he's your pastor. So let me exhort you. May the gospel you cherish enable you to open your hearts wide to Merrick. To receive his ministry with warm affection, charitable judgment, patient kindness, keeping no record of wrong, but cheerfully bearing all things, believing all things, and hoping the best. Let your love for Merrick and Abby never fail. And brothers and sisters, if we can have a church like that, we will commend the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, the things that we've worked through in this passage today are not easy. They are the challenges in life. And they are exactly where we need you to meet us in your grace and to help us to be faithful even through life's storms, to be faithful and fruitful in character, to live by your word and to minister it. To live by faith and not by sight. And to have hearts wide open in love for one another. So God, we pray, help us to do this, Lord, not just so that we can have a nice church, a good church, Lord, a happy church, a little family church, Lord, but help us to do this so that we can accomplish what Bert prayed out of Ephesians 3, that all the world and even spiritual beings would look at your church and wonder at your grace at work in fallen people like us and they would glorify you Lord glory to your name may the ministry of covenant of grace church and the ministry of Merrick Potter commend the gospel that we cherish we pray this in your name Jesus amen amen